Welcome to Chapter 3 of the Basics. I'm Pastor Mike, lead speaker of Time of Grace Ministry and the author of this little book called The Basics. Hey, before we get started, just in case you haven't already, I want to encourage you to listen to Chapter 1 and Chapter 2 before we jump in today to Chapter 3. That's going to help you grasp the big ideas about this book and especially the bigness and the glory of God before we start talking about you. Just another reminder that you can download the entire ebook for free. Just go to timeofgrace.org backslash the basics. Now, please enjoy chapter three. Chapter three, you. Even if we've never met, I have a hunch that you and I have the same problem. We are not good. I'm trying to say that word as if the caps lock is left on. Good. Capital G, capital O, capital O, capital D. And I say it that way because I want you to know I'm not talking about just good. You might very well be a good person, a relatively decent human being compared to the drama queens at work or the anger kings online. No, you're not perfect, but you do try to learn from your mistakes, grow in your character, and give more than you take. And that's good, but it's not good. And good, with the caps lock on, is what it takes to be with God. The Bible's logic is that God is so good that he can't stand things that are bad. God loves people so much that his very nature cannot put up with evil, even a little evil sprinkled in here or there, or that one bad thing buried deep in your past. God knows how much one cruel word can hurt people or how a little anger can ruin a family, so he refuses to put up with it. God is holy. He's pure. He's unable to stand it when the people he loves are not perfectly loved. This is actually one of the best parts about God's character. I mean, can you imagine if God was cool when people were cruel to you? But it's also the scary part about God. Because it means that God has serious issues with parts of your character and with mine. He has serious issues with you, and I'm not trying to judge you unfairly here. I feel the exact same way about my own life. Let's talk about me for a second. You might, if I gave you just the highlights, call me a pretty good person. I read to my kids almost every night. I take my wife out on a date almost every Friday. And I try to give strategically to the poor almost every single month, and that stuff is good, right? But if I added the lowlights, the whole story of me, you might reconsider your judgment. I often get moody about truly trivial things. I can be too inflexible and addicted to my own schedule. And I have this instinctive and ugly ability to think about what I want, when I want it, and how I want it done. That might be normal by human standards, but my normal still can hurt people, and that's not good. In fact, when I open the Bible and read what it says about living a good and loving life, there are some passages that make me question just how close to good I actually am. Let me share three of them with you. The first one says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, 
but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The second one says this, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And as much as I love the Bible, I I think I hate this one the most. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Wow. Apparently, God wants us to speak helpful words not have a hint of sexual immorality. He wants us to be grateful and humble and prioritize others. And I don't have to think back to my toddler or my teenage years to remember the last time I didn't do the good things on that list. I'm guessing you could write your own version of this moral inventory, remembering both the noble moments of your past and also those days and words and choices that you wish you could undo. In fact, since this is so spiritually important for you, I would love you to grab a pen and a piece of paper and finish the following sentences. The first sentence is this. People might consider me a good person because I... Feel free to gush a little bit about your best moments. But don't miss sentence number two. But people might change their minds if they knew that. And make sure you're honest with this part too. So, was it hard to write those last words? I wonder if you had pen and paper in hand, if you hesitated just a bit, thinking through who might see your words and read your confessions. Perhaps you chose the PG-13 version of your past, editing out the R-rated moments that you're ashamed to write down and put into print. What I'm trying to say is this. You and I have the same problem. We do some good and perhaps are mostly good, but we're not entirely good. We're not so good to the extent that we're good enough to be in the presence of God. Now, there's an obvious difference between being good at bar league softball and good enough for the major leagues. There's a clear line between karaoke good at singing and record label good at singing. We all know that in some crowds, you have to be more than good And that is absolutely true for God. By his standards, no one is all that good. No one is worthy to stand and soak in the glory and love of being in his presence. Uh, The Bible says it like this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Is God's standard high? It's the highest. And we would expect nothing less from someone who cares so much about love that he claims to be love itself. So, huge question for you. How is it even possible to reach that standard? How can people like us become good enough to be in the presence of God? About a year ago, a pastor told me about the answer that many elderly people gave him to that question. As he stopped by local nursing homes and shared a bit about the Bible and prayer, he would frequently ask people, if you died today, 
Do you think you'd be good enough to be with God? Are you confident that you would go to heaven? Almost always, the pastor told me, their gray-haired heads would nod. And so the pastor would follow up on their confidence. Well, how do you know? One especially confident woman replied, I went to church all these years. I paid my dues. Hmm. I mean, uh, no offense to one of my elders, but that is an extremely offensive answer. Can you imagine her saying that to all the people that she had hurt in her life? All the people that she hadn't loved? I might have yelled at you, taken you for granted, argued with you, ignored you, tried to manipulate you, but I went to church all those years. Uh, no. (laughs) No, spending an hour in church does not a good person make. Now, you might shake your head at this story and that woman's beliefs, but please note that most of us think something pretty similar. We think we're probably going to a better place because we fill in the blank with something good, and we didn't fill in the blank with something bad. We convince ourselves that our version of good should be good enough, or we compare our goodness to other people, especially the really bad people. At least I'm not Hitler. At least I didn't do that. And we tell ourselves that God must be happy with us, and he can only be mad at them. But that's only possible if God is something less if he isn't totally good, but just relatively good. So what? Let me ask the same question I did in our last chapter. So what? So you and I are not entirely good like we should be. We're human. We fall short. We don't always love the way God wants us to. Well, what's what's the big deal about being human? The big deal is that we are in serious danger of being separated from God. Now, this is what sin does. Sin is the simple word the Bible uses to describe our thoughts, words, and actions, or lack of actions, that don't line up with what the God of love wants. Whenever we replace love with sin, it separates people. Like two repelling magnets, sin pushes us apart so that the person who was once right here with us ends up over there apart from us. You've experienced this, haven't you? Imagine if you had a bad dad, overbearing, verbally abusive. Maybe he self-medicated his loneliness with a six-pack of paps and took out his unsatisfied soul on you. He sinned against you. And what did his sin and lack of love do? It made you want to run. Made you hide in your room when he came home. Made you long for a reason to just get out of the house. What? Why did you feel like that? Because sin separates people. Or think about a former friend from school. Maybe your best friend back in high school broke your trust. You thought you could tell her anything, and so you did. You poured out your heart and soul. But then one day, desperate for attention from someone she admired, your friend betrayed your trust. And what happened to your relationship? What did her sin do to you? It made you want to avoid her locker. It made you find a new place to sit at lunch. It made you look for a new ride home after school. Why? Because sin separates. Last example. Imagine you got into it with someone at church. 
A meeting of Christian men got rather unchristian. Love got lost in a battle of strong wills. And when that sin happened, what did it do? It made you want the meeting to end? Maybe it it made him avoid the next Sunday handshake? Maybe it made you think about finding a new church or to give up on going to church altogether. Why? Because sin separates. The Apostle Paul, that same guy who gushed about God's bottomless love, wrote these words to the Christians in Rome, The wages of sin is death. What you get for your sin is death. What happens when you don't love is that you don't get to be with the God of love. He is too good to be in the presence of that. He's ashamed of sin. He doesn't belong around it. He is holy and he is good. And this was never God's original plan. When God created us, he made us morally perfect, which allowed us to live in his presence. People could walk with God because they were so much like God. They were good. They were filled with love. However, things fell apart at what some Christians call the fall. The moment when sin entered the world and our resemblance to God was shattered like a broken mirror. Like it or not, you and I entered this story post-fall in a world that is stuffed with the sin that separates us from God and from one another. Uh, You might be pushing back on that claim because you don't feel like you deserve to be judged that harshly. But can I be blunt with you? The truth is that you do deserve it. I deserve it. You and I deserve to be held accountable for the bad things we have done, regardless of how many good things we may often do. Let me give you an analogy. Imagine you're sitting in court with the man who killed your best friend in a tragic drunk driving accident. After a few tequila shots on his birthday, this man gets behind the reel, drifts over the yellow line, and leaves your best friend's mother to grieve for the rest of her life. But the defendant's lawyer stands up and tries to reason with the judge. Your Honor, my client is a good man. He has spent 53 years on this earth and has only driven while intoxicated on one occasion, one single night. That means, since his 16th birthday, he has driven sober 13,504 days and driven drunk just once. By my math, he's been a good driver 99.99% of his life. And, Your Honor, my client has never once robbed a bank or abused a child or committed a hate crime. He's kept 99% of this nation's laws 100% of the time. Therefore, I believe it is obvious he's a good person who does not deserve to be punished in any way. Hmm. How would you feel about that defense? I bet you would be furious. Because you are not looking for percentages or averages. You are looking for justice. You care about that one night, that one choice, that one sin that separated your friend from his family. You get my point? God is not concerned about your moral batting average. He is a God of constant love. And that's why he can't stand it when people aren't constantly loved. Not even once. Now, this is the obvious problem that most people would rather not think about, but I hope you do. All of us have a court date coming with God, so 
what will we say to him? How will we defend ourselves? How will we claim that we deserve to go to a better place? How in this life will we possibly believe that a pure God of constant love is with people like us who are not pure and who do not constantly love? I realize these are disturbing questions to think about seriously. You might even be regretting the fact that you picked up this book. But the Christian faith, once this sobering news about sin has set in, offers what no one else in the universe does, an answer. The Christian faith offers a way for people like us to get back into the presence of God right now and forever. That is what Jesus is all about. Hey, thanks for listening. If you're finding this podcast helpful in your walk of faith, will you consider sharing it? Um, You probably know that word of mouth is one of the best ways that we can help other people connect to God, the basics, and really beyond the basics of the Christian faith. So help people grasp the height, the width, the depth, the beauty, the worthiness of our Savior Jesus Christ by sharing this with someone that you know. Thanks, and have a great day.